And then you get to World War II, where our wars expanded to the point that they were global. Mm -hmm. Now, this species is not just a threat to itself, it's a threat to the planet. It's a threat to their planet. And now they have to do something. So what are they going to do? Welcome back. I'm here again with Dr. Kevin Knuth. Kevin, welcome back. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I have a really strange question for you, and I know you have an answer. <laughs> so how hard would it be for an extraterrestrial civilization to find Earth? How hard is it to find Earth is a good question. It's not easy. This is a big galaxy. There's about well, Galaxies are typically big. There's about 300 to 400 billion stars. So there's a lot of places to look. <laughs> so that's probably the hardest part about finding Earth. I was interested in trying to understand how easy this is. You know, if we have non-humans present on Earth, I would like to know something about them. So I wondered what would it take for somebody from somewhere else to find Earth and then come here? And so to answer that, I ran some simulations. I basically simulated a society that was able to perform interstellar travel and colonize nearby star systems and possibly continue. And so how do you simulate a civilization? Well, you can't simulate all sorts of details, but I simulated the basics. You know, how long did the civilization last? How fast can their ships go? What accelerations and speeds? How long are they willing to be in a spaceship or can they be in a spaceship when they arrive at a star system? What's the probability that they'll have a planet that they can colonize or at least build bases on? And how long after they've built bases can they then colonize further? And so I was basically quantifying them with parameters that describe all these things. So mm -hmm. you just make up these civilizations at random. You just give them random numbers for each of these and see what they can do. And so the trick was to do this many, many times. And I think I did about 2 million civilizations. So I did this 2 million times and I kept track of the ones who found Earth. And that way I could then look back at the statistics of what their qualities were that made that possible. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So, so out of the ones who were spacefaring, who actually could make it out of their solar systems, many of which couldn't, only about 1.7% of them found Earth in my simulations. So that's still, that's, that's still, still pretty good. <laughs> that's still yeah. pretty good. Most of them were, you know, very good at space travel. So 1.7% of civilizations find Earth according to this model. So if that's really the case, you could conceivably come up with some kind of Drake equation in that a variant of that where you take into account some evidence. So if we were to get evidence that there are non-humans here on Earth and we know that they came from another planet, then we could perhaps estimate how many civilizations are out there. And what is so, that, like 34,000 civilizations, something like that? It's something like, 
Well, if you had 10,000 of them and only 173 of them find Earth, so mm -hmm. then that ratio would tell you that they're probably about, uh, I guess, on the order of 100 civilizations out there. So if you had 10,000. Okay, I okay, I, I assume 2 million. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a little high, but it's but okay. Yeah, but there's more than there's, there's certainly more than one, <laughs> right? So, yeah, we could work those numbers. I, I I would like to do more simulations before I start estimating things like that. Okay, so you find these civilizations, and then what? Right, and then I keep track of which ones find Earth, and then I basically look at the statistics of their different qualities. So one of the things that I was interested in was how far away their homeworld was, where they originated, and I found out that, you know, of course there's a distribution, mm -hmm. so from one million civilizations, I found that they're probably from within 20,000 light years from here, which is a good distance. The most probable distance from Earth was about 6,500 light years away. And the average was about 11,700 light years away. So, so they're probably not coming from more than 10,000 light years away. When the United States and China clash, the world will never be the same especially when forces beyond reality threaten to intervene. What if the United States went to war with the People's Republic of China? How would these rivals fight for supremacy on land, sea, air, and across the stochastic streams of time? What wonder weapons would be unleashed? What horrors would emerge from the irradiated sludge of the South China Sea? What heroes would rise and forever change the course of history? Tread into the deepest and darkest dimensions of the multiverse, gaze through a kaleidoscope of fractured realities, and bear witness to the disturbing visions of World War III from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Weird World War, China. Available now from Bain Books at Bain.com. Which is very, very, very far, right? We can't, right now, can't get four light years out. So, <laughs> so well, the, the length of the Milky Way is what, 100,000 light it's years? It's on the order of 100,000. Yeah, it's about that size. Yeah. Right. So, right, so they're, a from, from, a they're from our, so they would be from our neighborhood if they were coming here. If you found somebody, they're probably from within our neighborhood. And how long would it take them from? Point of origin. When I say point of origin, I mean from when the civilization kind of first got started to here. Right. So the civilization ages range from basically the most probable age of the civilization that finds Earth is probably around four million years old. Oh. So the civilization would have to have been around for a couple million years for this to work. Just for reference, how old would you place Earth civilization? Our civilization, probably not much more than 10,000 years. The Sumerians were, what, about 5,000 years ago? And yeah, the you last got, Ice Age was like... And Gobeli, 11, Gobe, Gobeli Tepe, or Tepe, the, the, the Gobeki Tepe, yeah. Gobeki, yes, this, Gobeki. This, <laughs> yeah, the site in Turkey was 
is about, about 11,000 or 12,000 years old. So that's probably the oldest that we know of. Yeah. Okay. All so right. So, years old. so they, they would have had to have been active in interstellar colonization for about 4 million years. Okay. All right. What other statistics about these? So they're basically, what they're doing is they're colonizing nearby star systems, and then those star systems are colonizing more. And so this domain, I'll call it a domain rather than empire. I don't want to invoke Star Wars, right? <laughs> Darth Vader and such. Um, so their domain is going slowly going to grow like this. Exponentially, uh, right. Yeah, it'll grow out. It'll grow out spherically. It'll actually grow very fast at first, and then it drops off because as you increase the radius of the domain, your volume is increasing quite a bit because you're adding a spherical shell to this sphere, right? And that spherical shell, as the radius gets larger, that shell gets larger. So as the radius goes up, the amount of volume you have inside is going as radius cubed. So so at first they expand pretty quickly and then they start to slow down as there's lots of star systems to populate. So when you go out one more light year, there's many, many, many more star systems to populate. So the domain starts expanding rather fast, but then decelerates. But you can estimate about when they first found Earth. And the most probable time would have been about 375,000 years ago. So out of all my simulations, if you found somebody here on Earth, they probably discovered Earth about 375,000 years ago. So in that case, they would have been active on Earth throughout human history. Yeah, before modern humans, for sure. So, of course, this invokes all sorts of thoughts about ancient aliens and things like this. How we can, again, giggle about right? <laughs> right, but, right. But it, but some of it might not be that funny. Some of it might actually be serious. So, I mean, this is what the simulations are showing. To advertise on Through a Glass Darkly, email throughglassdarklyads at gmail.com. What do you see on that show? Ancient astronaut theorists posit that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay. What other aspects of these civilizations are noteworthy? It turns out the most probable speeds were probably around 90% the speed of light for their yeah. ships. That's because the faster you go, the further you can get in shorter periods of time. So that's basically why. But the buildup to that's rather linear. So there are still something like half half of the civilizations are getting to Earth with, you know, ship speeds less than half the speed of light. And you still have some of them are making it to Earth at 20% the speed of light, which is a speed that we might actually be able to pull off. So it's not hopeless for us with our current technology. That was one of the interesting things to find. The accelerations, though, it's rather uniform. As long as you can accelerate it up to whatever speed you're going to cruise at, you know, that's what really seems to matter. But the most probable accelerations came out to be around 12,000 Gs. Now, does this model account for other sources of friction, like bumping into other civilizations? No, I didn't model any of that. So there are several things I didn't model. One is the model assumes that you have a spherical, basically a spherical expansion, 
with an average growth rate. I did not model stellar motions, so I don't take into account the fact that stars move. At the age of a civilization of around 4 million years, stars don't move that much. So 4 million, once you get to about 20 million years, then you start have to worry about stellar motions. Because if you were closer to the center of the galaxy, you could whip around and then come back out and go further. And I guess there wouldn't be that many stars that would supernova during that period of time, or it would be a small. Yeah, within 20 million years, you don't have that much to worry about. So, but I kept the lifetime of the star systems to be, I think it was below 10 million years or something. I might have had it below 5 million or 6 million years. Yeah, so the, given that percentage of about 1.7%, that if we find that Earth has been visited by somebody else, then it would imply that there are more than 100 spacefaring civilizations in the galaxy, which is pretty cool, right? And the domain sizes were rather large. So if, I don't know if I have my plots, I don't think I, yeah, the domain extent, some of the domains can grow as large as 20,000 light year radii, the most probable was about a 6,000 light year radius. So most probably if you had a domain of star systems that were inhabited by the, the civilization, it would be about a 6,000 light year radius. But given that fact and the fact that Earth probably would have been found about 375,000 years ago, you can reasonably determined that if that's the case, then if we do detect non-humans here who are extraterrestrial originally, then Earth is probably well within their domain. Mm -hmm. So Earth belongs to them rather than us. <laughs> Basically, Europeans are very familiar with the whole concept of colonization, so this shouldn't be too hard to get your head around, except that this time we're all on the business end of it. Earth is their planet in their minds pr probably which is a whole different ballgame. And I think that's the picture I'm kind of beginning to form in my mind, the hypothesis of what's actually going on here. But more importantly, the nearby stars are also belong to them as well. Basically, anything within a thousand light years of here probably belongs to these non-humans, and they've probably been there. So, so there's a bit of a downside is that you know we might not have a lot of exploring to do or able to do. <laughs> this is... That's also their star system. That's theirs. That's theirs. And so that's a little bit disappointing, perhaps. But going back to the business end of colonization, mm -hmm. we don't know if we do have non-humans here. We don't know where they are. They're probably in our oceans. And that's the hypothesis. And if that's the case, it's probably a relatively small number of bases. So if there were lots and lots of bases, we would have detected it already. So you can put some limits on how many there have to be. So they're probably, they haven't exactly, you wouldn't, I think colonization wouldn't be the right word. They've populated Earth, maybe with research stations or bases, but that's about it. Yeah, so that's what the simulation shows, which is interesting. And that was all done using basically conventional motion with the possibility of relativistic craft, craft that can get up to the speed of light. So I didn't consider faster than light travel or anything right. like that, or wormholes. I didn't consider those possibilities. 
Which would have probably dramatically accelerated. It could dramatically change everything. Yeah. Yeah. But then of course and you could you, know, you could you could it would what it would probably do is would radically change the sizes of these domains. It might not change the times and the amount of time it takes to find Earth, though, because once you dramatically change the size, you've got a lot of volume to explore. Things really slow down as you get bigger. So just because somebody on the other side of the galaxy can get here doesn't mean that they'll find Earth. So I think that's the point. Well, and it could also be that they found Earth and then they seeded us, for all we know, right? Again, speculation. It's a lot of possibilities, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think one of the other points I made was panspermia. If yeah. panspermia is an effective transport mechanism, then given their homeworld proximity, they could actually be related to life on Earth biologically. So panspermia, for people who haven't heard of this, is the idea that you can transfer life from one planet to another by natural means like meteorite impacts. So if you have a large meteorite impact that actually blows rocks off the surface of the planet, those rocks can go around in the solar system and eventually fall on another planet and bring biology to that planet as well. So we don't have impacts happening nowadays with those sizes, but the Asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, for example, 65 million years ago, when that thing hit in the Yucatan, the rock material from Earth was blown about halfway to the moon. That's how far up it went. It went about half, on average, went halfway to the moon. So there were rocks blown off the surface of the Earth that just kept going, actually escaped the Earth. And those rocks you know, if they weren't melted from the impact, which is possible, have bacteria in them. Maybe also ejected dinosaurs, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> right. But sometimes, though, you can estimate these rates. There is a rate at which if you average over the history of Earth during the time that it had life, you can figure out what's the rate at how many tons of material are ejected from Earth per year, right, throughout the history of life on Earth. And then you can work out how much of that material makes it to the Oort cloud, which is the cloud of comets and stuff on the outer edges of the solar system. And then every 20 million years or so, stars pass close by enough so that their Oort clouds actually interact and they exchange materials through the Oort clouds. So you could actually get biological material from Earth out to the Oort cloud of our solar system, which then transfers to another star. So the trick is that the bacteria would have to be frozen in space mm -hmm. for something like, you know, 20 to 40 million years. And if you can pull that off and have them be viable after 40 million years when they fall back down onto another planet, then you can transfer life from one planet to another. So something now, like a bacillus like anthrax, for instance. <laughs> something like that, right. Sure, right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, unfortunately, we know from the space shuttle disaster, the latter one, which was Columbia, right, that biologics can survive impact. There was an experiment on that shuttle where they had roundworms, I think, or maybe they were nematodes, like flatworms, in, in a jar or in a container, I think probably a metal container that was sealed. And 
when they recovered debris from the shuttle coming in, it's, so it came in at orbital speeds, right? It's coming at 17,000 miles an hour, burns up in the atmosphere, debris sprayed across the southern U.S., but they did recover that experiment, and the flatworms were alive, or some of them were still alive. So you can have multicellular organisms actually survive re-entry in impact, which is a shocking revelation, right? But what that tells you is it tells you that panspermia could work, right? You mm -hmm. could have bacteria embedded in rock, that then the rock comes in, falls, makes it to Earth, and the bacteria in the inside of that rock can actually survive re-entry. So we do know from experience now that panspermia is a possible mechanism. And if that's the case, then given that these non-human domains that find Earth are probably on average only about 6,000 light years away, that's close enough that if you had Earth material, Earth biologics propagate out through panspermia, they could be related to us, or we we to them. You know, we might be the same biology. So what do you make of the, I forget what the name of the hypothesis is, but it plays on the fact that everything is kind of quiet. <laughs> oh, the great silence. <laughs> the great silence. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's partly because it might be, and I don't know if this is true or not, more efficient to communicate using gravitational waves than electromagnetic waves? Or Well, I don't think gravitational waves are, would be a good way to do it, but there is another way you could. So, and I know the people who are doing this, so I can say a little bit, and some of this has been published previously, and people have tried this. So there's an effect called the Bohm-Aronov effect, which is a quantum mechanical effect where you can take a current and a wire and you can turn the current on and off. And typically this will create electromagnetic radiation. So electric fields and magnetic fields that radiate away. But you can shield the wire. So you can shield it to block that electromagnetic radiation. And then if you do take an electron beam and you reflect it around the wire and interfere the electron beam with itself, you can find that the interference patterns change when you put current in the wire and when you don't, even though the current's shielded. So the quantum mechanically, it's still detected. And that's because the electric fields and magnetic fields are coming from another potential called the A potential, which is the vector potential. So the electric field is the divergence of, of A, and the magnetic field is the curl of A, and this is where these come from. So it suggests that you could develop a communication system based on this effect, where you basically are shielding out the electric and magnetic fields, but you can still detect changes in the A field. Mm -hmm. And I know that there have been people working on this and that it works. You can do this. So there's benefits to this. The A potential only falls off as 1 over R instead of 1 over R squared, R which squared, is much sharper. Right. So it goes further and also is not affected by shielding. You can't shield it. So you can go through anything, whereas electric and magnetic fields can be shielded. So there's a great benefit to using the A potential for communication over electric and magnetic fields. 
And what I would rather guess is going on with the great silence is that using radio waves to communicate is a stupid thing to do. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, SETI people. I know you've all put your eggs in that basket, but there are other ways to pull this off. And we know of them. And those ways depend on quantum mechanics. And, and you can communicate with the vector potential, which won't create electric and magnetic fields, which are easily detected, whereas the vector potential isn't as easily detected. So you can be quiet and still communicate. And I think that's probably, that would be my bet, because anybody who discovers Maxwell's equations, which govern electromagnetism, yeah, they might all use radio waves, but you're going to use that until you get to quantum mechanics and you realize you can use the A potential, which is going to be better. The problem is that it took us 100 years to realize that you could use the A potential. Maybe that's what happens. Maybe it takes about 100 years until a civilization realizes, oh, there's a better way to do this, and then they all shift mm -hmm. to the better way. And then what happens, you know, you look around the universe and the, the societies that are talking are all more than 100 years old or uh, more than 100 years past that point, And they're all communicating in a different way. You can also communicate with laser beams, which are directed. That's another way to do it. Mm -hmm. So there, you could use directed communications. That's also more secure in some ways, secure in a different way. So there are other ways to communicate. It's not a problem with SETI. SETI is doing the best it can with what we do, right? The first thing you do is you look for things like us, right? NASA is still following the water, right. <laughs> right? They say that all the time. We're following the water. And meanwhile, you look at the Viking experiments that tried to detect life on Mars, and they came back with one of the experiments came back with mixed results. And the ones that were negative were the ones that we added water to. You don't have water all over the place on Mars. So well, why water? Well, that's where we expect the life to be. But what if you have life that isn't that reliant on water? And we have discovered bacteria in Antarctica that uses hydrogen peroxide to stay fluid, right? And now, hydrogen peroxide would be really bad for your organic chemistry, So, but these bacteria have enzymes to protect themselves from the hydrogen peroxide, so they work, and they stay fluid in ice, and they live in ice. The problem is if you add water, you kill those bacteria because the hydrogen peroxide diffuses out of the cell, and then they don't have enzymes on the outside of the cell to stop the hydrogen peroxide, so the hydrogen peroxide destroys the cell from the outside. So those bacteria die when they come in contact with water. So you could imagine, what if you had bacteria on Mars that are staying fluid using hydrogen peroxide, which is present on the surface of Mars in some quantity? So, yeah. so if you had that case and you did an experiment where you added water, you'd kill all the life, and then you'd have this mixed bag experiment. Now, isn't now there also some that's what the situation is because NASA hasn't actually done experiments to look for life on Mars since 1977. Why? I don't know. <laughs> they're busy well, looking for water. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. Isn't there so also some seasonal effect where there's well, like there's a, a methane cycle. There's exactly a, there's, there's exactly. a methane cycle which is very suspicious as well. So it, right. there there is some circumstantial evidence that there could be life on Mars. Yes. Why we are not actively looking for life on Mars and haven't been, I, I can't answer that. It's almost like we're not trying. It's almost like we found it and we didn't like what we found, you know, or and we just didn't 
Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be a lot of speculation. I think it's easier just to think we're not really trying. <laughs> I think that's probably, sadly, probably the case. But so are you familiar with John Brandenburg's work on the surface of Mars? I've heard of him, but I'm not familiar with it off the top of my head. No, there is a certain ratio of different isotopes of xenon. I think is one of the. Oh, is this the nuclear war idea? Yeah, it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean there was a nuclear war. It could be like a Project Orion sort of thing. I think John Brandenburg definitely posits a, it's a hydrogen bomb, but alternatively, you could have the same effect with like a nuclear drive that crashed into the surface. But the bottom line is the ratio that they found is, I think it's like 2.5 to 1. Whereas everywhere else in the solar system, it's one-to-one, except for Earth after we started testing hydrogen bombs. So it's there's two places where there's nuclear weapons signatures or are, are consistent with nuclear weapon signatures on the surface of Mars. And they're right near where the faces on Mars were identified. So the you know, Sidonia Mensis and the other one is Galaxis Chaos. There's another kind of face. Those faces are just mountains, so that's hard. But still, I mean, the so isotope thing is so, interesting. So they said. So, so they say, right? But regardless, where those faces are is also where the signatures, yeah, yeah. are, or where those faces have alleged to be, regardless of what you believe. Right. So where the alleged faces are, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that would be better. But, <laughs> exactly. But, but what's but but the isotope thing is still interesting. Yeah, and that's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, what's the earliest a civilization could have been here? Because you kind of gave the mean at 300 and... uh, Oh, the earliest time they could have been here uh, that I have. Let's see. And also, what does that distribution look like? Is it a normal distribution? Is it a... Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of... No, it's kind of parabolic, actually. It kind of goes like this from... Can I share a screen? Would that be what yeah. I'm going to do? Yeah, you can do that. I can share a screen. I'll show you the plot. Why not? There, now you should see it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the most probable time is here, which is about 375,000 years ago. But, you know, you could have what, half of them, which is probably this volume you know, a certain number are, are, so here's half of them, right? So half of them were from within the last 3 million years, and the others are coming in, you know, 5 million years ago, much longer ago. It could be several million years, a couple million years, which is a long time. So that would have been around the I don't know exactly what the timeline is, but, you know, you'd have Australopithecines down here, right? This would be the first opening scene of 2001 Space Odyssey. Would it be right around that, right? Mm-hmm. I can't, I, yeah, this, this raises more questions than answers. <laughs> of course it does. Of course it does. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this has been going on a long time, and, and that's what this shows us. And this is what we're... This is what you see when you look at the reports. This has been going. There are Roman reports of UFOs. Yeah, very similar, very similar to the ones we have. There was one battle, and I can't remember where it was, recorded by a Roman historian, where 
They were fighting in this valley, mm -hmm. and three flying shields came flying low over the battlefield and scared everybody and actually ended the battle. They all just, everybody just took off running. So, I mean, this is, yeah, this has been going on a long time. Wow. That's, Rome, that's written Roman history. So, I mean, yeah. You know, they're mass hallucination while you're in battle. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. You could, the skeptic could say that. Skeptics can say a lot of things. They can. A yeah, good friend yeah. of mine has a has a great saying. He said, "A sufficiently motivated skeptic can deny anything." Yeah, <laughs> which is true. <laughs>yeah, you never really see a balanced skeptic. You never see somebody who, oh, okay, yeah, all right. That, that's, that's what that's what we scientists are supposed to be, and that's what I try to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm. That's that's where you embrace the I don't know. I don't know. So let's look. You know, let's look at the information we have. Yeah, these are eyewitness reports. I know that, and I know they can be wrong, and I can still evaluate them. I can still read them. Yeah, you can still send somebody to prison based on them. So why can't you? I make decisions all day long based on anecdotal evidence, all day long. Mm -hmm. And then when well, there's one topic comes at me and somebody says it's anecdotal evidence and I can't listen to it, I'm like, well, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> what makes that different than all of this? <laughs> it doesn't. I can still listen to it and evaluate it and hold it with, you know, some degree of uncertainty. So what are kind of the next steps in this process of UAP and UAP? I know I'm radically changing topics, but what do you think of the next steps for people who are following this? Yeah, um, well, that's a good question. Well, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of activity. I'm told there are more whistleblowers in the wings. There are a number of them that have talked to the inspector general, and there are a number that have talked to people in Congress and those have been closed door sessions. So there's a lot more information that's come out. And I'm hoping that somebody will come out with hard evidence at some point. I'm a scientist. I would like to see the hard evidence. I believe Grush is probably right. And I think when he claims that we have crash craft and biologics, I think that's likely. But I want to see the evidence. And I think that's important to provide that. So there's always the hope that'll come out. But that's just hope, right, at this point. And when this has been covered up since the beginning, and there's no reason to expect everybody to just change course, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that'll happen. I think that some scientists are starting to pay attention and realize, mm -hmm. yeah, this isn't all nonsense. Some of this is really interesting. And there are scientists getting involved. I'm rather surprised because I get emails rather frequently now, probably you know, once every two weeks, I'll get an email from a scientist who happened to see one of my podcasts or saw me on Encounters or a Tear in the Sky and mm -hmm. basically write me and say, you know, thank me for the work that I'm doing and saying that this is interesting. And if there's any way they can help, they'd like to. So I get messages from scientists, you know, several months like this now which I expected would be the opposite, actually, but that's not how it's playing out. So well, you're giving people permission is what you're doing by standing out there. Alone. Yeah, that, that's that's right. true. Yeah. And I think that the one of the things that and I tried to think of how I can get more scientists involved, because I think that 
This is one of the most interesting questions there is. And there's a lot to discover here. There's potentially many, many discoveries. So very often, especially young scientists are hungry for an interesting problem to work on. And you want an interesting problem. This is probably one of the most interesting ones you'll ever uncover. When I first presented my results on estimating speeds and accelerations at a scientific meeting, I had a colleague, a friend and colleague came in and said to me, he said, why would you do this to yourself? Why are you putting yourself in this position? Because this is dangerous. You know, you're talking about a topic that nobody wants to talk about, and scientists are going to think you're foolish for talking about it. And why would you do this? And my response was that this is simple, because if this is real, this is the biggest discovery in human history. And I'm not going to pass this up. I'm not, I'm not stupid. <laughs> That's amazing, right? The people are just, yeah, they're like, not- they're like, under hypnosis or something, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I had two options. I said, I can just ignore this and keep doing what I'm doing. And then, you know, 30 years from now, as it finds out this was all real and think, wow, I could have worked on that. I could have been one of the leading people on that. I don't want to be kicking myself afterwards. And I thought, oh, I'm going to play with this a little bit and see where it goes. And that's basically been my attitude. And when I look to see what makes this easier for scientists to handle, people don't just change their worldview immediately. You can't just go from this one worldview to another one where non-humans are real and they might be on Earth and all this. You can't just drop your old worldview and jump on board of a new one. This has to be done delicately. And I think one of the ways to handle this is to create bridges, basically create a bridge so that there's a way to get from this worldview to the other one, right? So this top presentation that I showed you a slide from, Simulations mm-hmm. of Galactic Colonization, is what one such bridge. That work just shows that galactic colonization is actually possible. And if that happened, and if somebody came to Earth, then they would have been here throughout human history. And then this would be the case, and this would be the case. And we see that this matches up with some of the reports. So maybe that's actually what's going on. So that forms a bridge and that helps convince people and they can then move more easily from this worldview to the, the one that we've all been taught to the one that, you know, might actually be the case. You know, another one that I'm wanting to tackle is the question of why visit Earth? That comes up all the time. Why would anyone bother coming to Earth? And it almost makes me angry when I hear that. I'm like, <laughs> have you seen Earth? Earth is, right. this is a fantastic planet. I mean, the whole planet's alive. The whole surface is alive. I drove out to Boston the other day from Albany and going through the Berkshire Mountains, you know, and it's winter now, so the leaves are off the trees. The hills are just fuzz with trees. All the carbon on this planet is alive and growing up off the surface. The whole surface, it's amazing. It's an amazing place. Why wouldn't you come here? And I joke to my students when I'm talking about astrobiology in class, I said, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting something that's alive here on Earth. That's how much life is here. It's amazing. So I'm shocked when scientists say, why would you bother going to Earth? We spend billions of dollars exploring Mars. Mars is not obviously alive at all. We still have a few hints that there might be life somewhere on Mars. You take one look at Earth, and it's obvious there's life here. It's a very different situation. 
And I think the bigger question is, why isn't there life on Mars? Why isn't there obvious life on Mars? I think that's the bigger question. And that's a worrisome thing. We're missing something because there, there ought to be life all over the place on Mars too. It's cold, but not that cold. And life can adapt and do different things. And why didn't it? You know, these, I think those are the real questions. And its day, its average day is suspiciously very close to the average Earth day, right? Yeah, well, there's a lot of similarities between Earth and Mars. It's remarkable, yeah. But, you know, the, so the real answer is exploration is never seems to be a good enough answer for anybody to go anywhere. There has to be some kind of gain, right? This is what Columbus had took some effort for him to get funding to go look for a, a Western route to the Indies. But there has to be some kind of potential gain. So what is the potential gain for coming to Earth? Well, there's a lot of potential gains. One is it is covered with organic molecules. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know how organic molecules are distributed across planets from world to world and solar system to solar system. But it could very well be that some of the common organic molecules here on Earth can't be found anywhere else in this area of the galaxy. I mean, there's what there's somewhere on the order of 20 million different kinds of organic molecules. One of the most common ones here on Earth is cellulose because plants, right? So mm -hmm. what if cellulose can't be found anywhere else in the galaxy? I mean, that's possible. And then Earth is interesting, right? For that reason, for chemists alone, it's interesting. You have a high concentration of particular organic molecules that could be very different from any organic molecules you find elsewhere. So that's one of many reasons, and I won't go into them because I'm writing a paper on this right now, so I don't want to get scooped <laughs> for how many right. great ideas. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it's only one of the ideas, one of the reasons to come for it. There's lots of reasons to come here. But that's another bridge. Another thing that you know, some scientists have in their minds, why would you bother coming here? Well, you show them why Earth would be a great place to visit, and then they realize, well, it would be great to visit any planet with life. That would be really right. important thing to do. And then you realize that anybody who realizes this is going to be traveling everywhere. And that's what an intelligent civilization would do. There's reasons to go out other planets. There's reasons to explore. There's good reasons. And it's not just looking for gold or water or, you know, those things you can find anywhere. Right. Um, what makes what makes Earth different is life. That's a key. We know from our solar system, life isn't horribly common, but it doesn't have to be rare either. Now, in the current environment, how likely do you think that these whistleblowers come out and we get more information in the next year. I think we're going to get more information in the next year. I don't know if whistleblowers will come out, and I don't know how useful it'll be, depending on, you know, what depends on who they are and what they have to say and what evidence they can bring. It could be incredibly useful for somebody to come out, and it could be marginally so, you know, in the long run. I think in the short run, it's useful. The more, the more the merrier, and I think that it'll normalize this idea, which I think is one of the things that has to happen. The media still hasn't caught on. The media still hasn't caught on that this is an important story. Well, they'll only catch on when they get permission to catch on. I mean, that's the bottom line. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. Yeah, but I right? mean, I mean, I mean Le- Leslie Keen couldn't get the uh, story about David Grush published in the New York Times. The New York Times didn't want to publish it. Just stupid. Stupid. Yeah, I, but you know the intelligence community has back channels and uh, the major media outlets, right? So if they want to kill a story, they can kill a story. It's not. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And to some degree, certainly you can keep things quiet. And But at some point, those people need to catch on that they can't keep the lid on this forever. And the more they tighten the grip, the more star systems will slip through their fingers, right? I mean, this is the, but this is the problem. There's an element of the public that's caught on that this is real and going on. There's an element of the sciences that have caught on to this. And there's an element of our government that's caught on to this. And so now any attempt to quash it is only going to fire people up. It's only going to motivate me more. And it's going to motivate my colleagues more. I'm not just one anymore. Yeah. I mean, we had the head of the House Intelligence Committee oppose eminent domain for a program that doesn't exist. Right? (laughs) That says something. That says a lot. I mean, that is admission. That is that is the biggest admission. That is that is almost better than just publicly admitting. Yeah, if it doesn't exist, why is this an issue? Just just let it go. Let it go. Yeah. Right. So he basically declared with proof that it's real. Whereas if he were to come out and say that the program was real, nobody would believe him. But because right. of his actions, you, it's clear that it's real. I mean, but they're not that bright and they're not thinking ahead. They think that they've got this under control and under wraps and they don't. And Well, not, not, not to beat up on our coin-operated congressman from Ohio's 10th district, but have you ever looked at his background? No, I haven't. I, Absolutely. I got, I got so, things to do. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm a former military officer, okay? Like, I am more qualified to head the intelligence committee than this guy is. So no military background whatsoever, no family military background, children haven't served in the military. He was the mayor of Dayton, corrupt while he was there. I think he's been married and divorced twice. Not that that necessarily means anything, but... He, in his second marriage, he became a millionaire. And then after that divorce, which happened shortly thereafter, he had a negative net worth. And now, you know, it kind of swung to a positive net worth. He gets most of his funding from Lockheed Martin or the defense community. Like he's just, he is the very definition of a coin operated congressman, but he has no background in intelligence, no background in aerospace defense. He's just a lapdog. I mean, and, I, and I'm not I'm not saying it to demean him. I'm just saying it because it's a fact. So anyway, <laughs> I, I won't let you dignify or, or you know, <laughs> undignify yourself by commenting on that. I that's I'll, right. I'll, I'll yeah, I don't I don't I don't really know anything about him. I'm not, uh, that's not where my attention's focused. So that's right. That's right. You shouldn't comment on it. I completely agree. <laughs> I, I will I will comment on that guy until the day. And 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 by the way, I'm not politically unaligned for like i'm not you know let's just say i'm not um a traditional hater mm-hmm. of, of that but it's just it just it just disgusts me that somebody would pr- literally not literally but figuratively prostitute themselves in order to stay in office when they're clearly unqualified to hold the office anyway with that 
Yeah, but I think the bigger thing is that the tide has changed. And apparently the other part of the equation that none of us are considering with respect to disclosure, and this was discussed at the Seoul meeting, was what are the non-humans going to do? Well, that's the other part of the, that question. The when that Chinese. was posed, when that was posed, I was like, "Well, there was a we had what three hundred people in that room, right?" And when that question was brought up, it was a dead silence in that whole room because I think that hit all of us like a ton of bricks. Like, oh my god, I didn't consider that they might change their behaviors if we disclose. <laughs> and so that was a whole interesting exchange. I can go real dark if you want. On that one, <laughs> I will leave that up to you. <laughs> I'm trying to stay positive. All right, I'll, 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 I'll say it. I'll just let you react. But let's say Earth is an experiment, and oh crap, they spoiled the experiment. Time to start over. Let's clear the decks. Oh my god, that could be their response, right? That, so anyway, that's that's very dark. I think that my take on things is a little less dark. <laughs> but well, it's not my take. I'm just saying. I'm just right. you know but, but, I. Yeah, so my so if I were to guess what's happened, I mean, we've we saw a change in their behavior in the 1940s, mm-hmm. around the time of World War II. That's when we became cognizant of them. Um, generally, what are they concerned about? Well, they hang AI? out <laughs> nuclear weapon sites. They hang out near nuclear power plants. They're concerned about military activity, and they're concerned about polluted areas. So pollution and military, and especially nuclear weapons, that worries them somehow, or it concerns them somehow. So what if you have a situation where they discovered Earth uh, 375,000 years ago, something like this, and they've been here throughout human history, and they, they have some investment in Earth. This is, the, the, this is their planet. It's part of their domain. Mm-hmm. They may see themselves as caretakers or whatever, stewards of the planet. I mean, we sometimes call ourselves stewards of the planet, although we're pretty crappy at it. But they may see themselves that way. And then now you've got a situation where the one species has become rather dominant and become intelligent and dominant, is about to become spacefaring or is currently spacefaring or just, well, we're babies, we're just starting. And and then you get to World War II where our wars expanded to the point that they were global. Mm-hmm. Now, this species is not just a threat to itself, it's a threat to the planet. It's a threat to their planet. And now they have to do something. So what are they going to do? Well, let's first assess the situation. So we're going to fly along with airplanes during bombing runs. This is the whole Foo Fighter business, right? And since then, with every military endeavor that the U.S. has been involved in, the involvement with UAPs has gotten more and more dramatic. During 2015, when we were doing bombing runs in Syria, and you had the USS Roosevelt in the Persian Gulf, Mm -hmm. our pilots were flying planes north to Syria and were encountering UFOs flying at the airplanes, flying at them and dodging out of the way last minute, right? In one case, I was told that One UFO came and did barrel rolls around the cockpit and then took off. That's rather aggressive without actually being aggressive, right? And in fact, in one of the congressional reports, they talked about 
aggression becoming ex exponentially more aggressive. I think that was the term that was used there. So we don't know all the details. But in the last 80 years, they've become more aggressive toward our military. And that appears to be the case. So what if you have a situation where, you know, they're trying to figure out how to get us in line? You know, how do we convince this species? Yeah, they really have to stop it with this war stuff. They got to stop it with the nuclear weapons. You got to stop the pollution. I mean, humans don't like being told what to do. Americans, especially. Um, this is not going to go well. And I think the problem is going to be with us. And we're not going to accept the fact that somebody else wants us to take better care of ourselves, each other, and the planet. When anybody speaks that message publicly, they are usually beat down pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So I worry that we are going to come to, you know, butt heads with these guys. Yeah, they haven't tried to take over the planet. They haven't tried to colonize. That's all true. But if we're a threat to the planet and they're concerned about that, they might get to the point where, you know what? We've tried everything. I think these guys only understand one type of activity, and that's force. And maybe we're going to have to try a little bit of that. And I'd hate to see it come to that. I wouldn't want that situation because we're going to be at the big time losing end. But that's kind of my I mean, they, they could do a the much they could do a much bigger display, right? They could. I mean, that would be. But the question is, was that going to work? I mean, that was. You know, we discussed that in World War II. You know, what if we dropped the bomb just off the coast of Tokyo and showed them what we can do? And the response to that was, well, when we blew it up at Trinity, the generals were, the response was, is that all it does? And so they decided that a display wouldn't be good enough that they had to actually take out a city. So that was what we did in World War II. So, you know, what are they going to do? I don't know what they're going to do. They're not human. They're not going to think like us. Right. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe not. We don't know. The fact that Congress is worried about this and they're worried about aggression in the military and the Navy is worried, I think that this is a bigger problem than any of us are aware of at this point. And I think that the gatekeepers who have kept this quiet are probably doing us all a disservice at this point, getting us all into a big bit of trouble. And the fact that the Americans put pressure on the other countries to keep this quiet, too, is another problem. Yeah, because I don't think we're the only country that has these craft and i don't think china oh no i'm sure we don't either. No, no, not at all and, and and i don't think russia and china are the, are the only ones to have them either yeah. i think there are uh, plenty of other countries that have so all right my friend these are interesting absolute, times that's for sure yeah yeah the, the ancient chinese curse <laughs> all right my friend <laughs> it was an absolute pleasure as always that's great thank you for having me i appreciate it yeah thank you dr knuth if you enjoyed today's video, please hit like and subscribe, and also hit the notification button so you can be notified whenever I post new content. Thank you. Now, if you're enjoying the channel and you want to support it, there are several things you can do. In fact, there are five things you can do. The first thing you can do is just buy my books. I got plenty of books out in the market right now, and I would prefer that folks buy a book rather than giving me direct support because they get something out of it. They have a real tangible product. The second way you can support me is by becoming a member on YouTube, 
or becoming a patron on Patreon. And just go to either site and it'll explain everything. third way you can support the channel is by checking out my merch site, which is here. There's plenty of stuff that you could get to support the channel. And I'd appreciate that you, you have it and can wear it. Not only do you help support the channel, but you also help promote the channel. And I appreciate that. The fourth way that you can support the channel, and this is really easy, is anytime you want to buy something on Amazon, literally just go to the description below and click on any link, literally any link. The channel gets a cut of that, and it costs you no extra money. You just go through the link as I'm part of the Amazon Affiliates Club. The fifth and final way you can support the channel is through donations. Now, I don't prefer these because it's more of an expression of gratitude, but you don't really get anything out of it as a subscriber to the channel. However, if you decide to do these options, there's two options. There's Buy Me A Coffee, which is a separate site, and there's also you can go through YouTube with either a Super Chat, a Super Sticker, or a Super Thanks. Again, I prefer Buy Me A Coffee because that organization takes less money than Amazon does. But either way, I appreciate any support you are willing to give the channel. So thank you very much and keep watching. I really appreciate it.